Good morning, everybody. Uh, this is Jeff Powell. Uh, welcome to the Polaris podcast. Uh, with me today is Matt Erickson, our Senior Portfolio Manager. Uh, we're going to have a fun conversation this morning. Welcome, Matt. Good morning. So today, um, you know, you and I have kind of have multiple conversations during the, the week. Uh, and I brought you on today because what I really want to talk about uh, is you know, where value is brought to the table uh, with regard to investment management. You know, you hear all these statistics and, and people are constantly uh, kind of questioning uh, passive versus active. And, you know, if you're active, how are you active? And, you know, how are you adding value to the table? So um, what I wanted to do is maybe just start off and, and maybe kind of hit on you know, the the passive versus active element, if you wouldn't mind, Matt, you know, so some people may not fully understand the language. So if you maybe could tell us a little bit more about uh, the differences of and, you know, why we are obviously active in the way that we manage money. Gotcha. So passive investing, which has really grown in popularity over, I'd say, the past decade, a lot of that being tied to the proliferation of the ETF. Um, but passive investing is really just replicating the index, and in most cases, at the lowest cost possible. Um, so instead of looking, for example, the S&P 500, instead of trying to, quote, beat the S&P 500, they're just owning it. So whatever percentage weighting any stock is, and, and it's a capitalization weighted index, right, so the larger companies take up a bigger percentage of the index, um, you're just going to own that. And net of fee, you know, if you're working with an advisor, even net of fee on the, the product you're using, obviously you're kind of thrown in the towel on trying to outperform. An active manager essentially looks at the same landscape and says, well, I can, I can do better picking stocks in this case. You can do it in bonds as well, but uh, picking stocks and, and add value for my investors. The problem is a lot of active managers uh, really don't do a very good job of that. And so I think that's kind of led to or I guess provide a little bit more of a tailwind uh, for some of these people just doing passive, which to me, quite honestly, it, it really doesn't make sense. It, it goes against everything I believe in. Yeah, I mean, so from my experience, I mean, if you're talking about uh, somebody who's doing a passive investment strategy, uh, you are buying a, a index, uh, you know, it can be a multitude of different ones. You, you obviously brought up the S&P, which is a, a smart one, but yes, you're guaranteed to underperform by whatever your cost structure is, either uh, the cost of going out and doing it yourself, or the you know the cost of actually hiring somebody to to create an asset allocation for you, uh, and then you're paying them on top of it. So you're kind of just a uh, a boat sitting on top of uh, the water, and you kind of go up and down with the tides and and so on. I think that one of my bigger issues there also is that people only look at the index and say, well, I'd rather match that index or come close to matching it than what I'm seeing sometimes in the passive management side of things, you know, not understanding that there's also the emotions of it. And a lot of individual investors who aren't looking for professional help will sit there and say, well, I'm gonna invest in the S&P and the NASDAQ or whatever. And then the moment that they start to drop, uh, they get out and they allow their emotions to get the better of them and they don't get the performance of that yep. index. So. It's a, it's kind yeah, of a can't take the downside. Exactly. So if we can kind of jump into the active side of things, um, you know, to me that's a really interesting element of of what we want to be looking at here 
uh, which is to sit there and say, okay, well, active management means a lot of things. So, you know, obviously, you know, Polaris manages money in a specific way. There's uh, a lot of other ways of, of managing money. Um, maybe you can kind of hit on um, some of the other, well, what we do versus what somebody else does and why mm -hmm. we believe that adds value to the table. Yeah. So let me start off by just kind of throwing out a statistic. And, and I think this kind of provides a little bit of context into, you know, where there's an issue with the way most active managers choose to manage money. What is it they're doing wrong? So to kind of lend some support to us even making statements like that, uh, there's an S&P report that comes out twice a year. It's their S&P indices versus active funds report. Uh, in short, it's referred to as the SPIVA report. But in that report, they basically look at what percentage of mutual funds in the United States failed to outperform their benchmark. Uh, and I just pulled this up this morning to look at the updated stats from mid-year. And for example, the U.S. large cap funds, that, that category, if you will, over the past 24 years, 94% have failed to outperform their benchmark, which in this case would be the S&P 500. And I, I think that's remarkable. Um, it's, I mean, it's, it really makes you question what it is these people are doing from an active management standpoint. So I think that's the segue into kind of that part of the, the answer is, you know, the average mutual fund manager is holding, or, or SMA manager, if you will, you know, they're holding 100 to 200 stocks, you know, so they're they're diversified in that sense, but at the same time, it's really hard to add any value. Uh, the other thing they're doing is very often looking like they're indexed from a sector weighting perspective. You know, so if, for example, we run some value strategies and in large cap value, 20% of the index is, is financial. So a lot of times when you look at a large cap value active manager, you'll see that they're 21, 22% in financials if they like it. Maybe they're 18, 19%, they don't. And over time, net of fee, it's just really hard to add any discernible difference. So there's kind of what we look at as, as the Polaris approach, if you will. Uh, and this is, you know, obviously things you and I have, it's really the culmination of, of a lot of things you and I have done in, throughout our careers that have gotten us to this point. But I think you can really narrow it down to four defining attributes that give you the best chance to, to generate Maybe not performance every year or every quarter, certainly not every day, but over time to add considerable value for your clients. Uh, and so I'm going to kind of hit on those four real quick. And if you want me to elaborate any more, if you care to piggyback on them, have at it. But you know, the way I look at our approach is one, we're tactical. So we're looking to adapt to prevailing market conditions. If market conditions are favorable, we're going to take on a little bit more risk and be more aggressive. If market conditions are not, uh, and this goes to your point on, on passive management, we're going to reduce the risk because we know that investors can't really hang on for that 30, 40% decline. So we're going to look to preserve capital on the downside. And that's one thing you and I have always had uh, in common throughout our careers. But again, so first attribute, be tactical, adapt to prevailing market conditions, right? Two, and I touched on this just a minute ago, um, sector agnostic. If we like a sector, you're going to see us be more aggressively weighted in it, regardless of what, what our benchmark might have from a percentage weighting uh, in that respective sector. Uh, and I, you can add a ton of value that way. And the other two would be relative concentration, meaning we, we run strategies that are 20 or 30 stocks. And a lot of these other managers are trying to add value running 100 to 200 stock portfolios, and you just can't do it. 
And in fact, if you look at things statistically, and we've got some white papers we've written on this, we've written on this, we've covered it, I know, in our quarterly institutional uh, reviews and whatnot. But if you look at it, when you run a portfolio of more than 30 stocks, statistically, you are not, you are no longer mitigating downside risk any further, but you are significantly reducing your opportunity to outperform. So again, that's kind of our ethos, is having that relative degree of concentration. And then the last one, of course, which Jeff, I know you've been a huge proponent of over the years, is, is having a dividend bias. Because if you look at things over time, the stocks that have paid a dividend tend to outperform over longer periods, non-dividend payers. And those that have increased their dividend with regularity have done even better. So we look to kind of combine all four of those attributes um, to give us that chance of, of outperforming with a measure of consistency. And, and almost more importantly, providing our investors with risk-adjusted returns, uh, which again, I, I think that's equally, if not more important, because we want to try and reduce the emotional reactions uh, of our investors. And when you can reduce downside risk, that, that just smooths out the ride a little bit. Also makes it so you don't have to be as aggressive uh, to win on the upside either. And I think we do a great job of that. So let's let's dig into uh, to each of these um, in, in a little bit more detail. Um, when you yeah. talk about tactical um, and in what you just got covering right there, um, obviously I know what you're talking about. I don't know that our audience necessarily knows what we're talking about. So what is tactical? I mean, like you know, maybe you can talk about you know how um, our two different kind of buckets of how we manage money on a tactical basis, what yeah. what that means, both both to the positive and to the negative. I mean, like how, how we play defense, but also how we play offense. Absolutely. And and we run two different philosophies that complement each other. So yeah, I think that's a good, good point to touch on. So when we're referring to tactical, I mean, the easy way I always refer to it is adapting to prevailing market conditions. But what that doesn't tell you is, well, how are you doing that? What is it you're doing? I think that's what Jeff's hitting on here. And there, again, two different ways to do this, at least the way we approach it. So we have unconstrained strategies that we run here, and we have another category of strategies that we refer to as focus. And the way they navigate the markets is slightly different, particularly during uh, market pullbacks. So I'll start with the unconstrained. Unconstrained, and again, this is how we're tactical in those, in those strategies. In the unconstrained, when market conditions aren't favorable, we can't, you know, we can't change necessarily what's going on in the market, but we can adjust to the level of risk that we're taking. And in the unconstrained strategies, we're often going to raise some cash, you know, and so we're not, we're not tied to our benchmark where we have to stay fully invested. And even as recent as what a year and a half ago in, in March of, of 2020, I mean, we were close to 50% cash, if not a little bit over in some of the unconstrained strategies. And that allowed us to avoid a lot of the downside risk in what was a, a really volatile market. Now, the other way that you can kind of navigate risk other than the cash game is, is just dialing up and down the risk of your underlying holdings. So, for example, in the focus strategies, which I have a little bit more of a hand in running um, during March of last year, we couldn't go more than 10% cash. So what we do, we moved about 50% of the portfolio really into consumer staples and healthcare. And even though we remained essentially fully invested, we took on half the downside risk of the market in that month. And so it's just two different ideologies on how to get there. Now, here's the, the 
pros and cons to, to both to a degree. So unconstrained by raising the cash, you know, you are being more defensive. So in those market declines and prolonged market declines, one would expect those portfolios are going to hold up better than the focus strategies. The focus strategies stay fully invested. So despite the fact that they may take some um, dial down the risk a little bit, they're still going to take the downside of the market to a degree, right? Now, the other side, so again, one goes down a little less, one goes down a little more. When the market flips and goes up the other way, if you're sitting in cash, you're going to miss a little bit of the upside. And that's where the focus strategies can maybe capture a little bit more of that first step. Uh, but again, we look to pair those up to complement each other. There's just two different ways to, to play the tactical uh, approach, if you will. Absolutely. And, and neither one are, are correct in having both, uh, as you've already kind of alluded to, um, I think are you know, very important for, for most people to understand. Um, you know, the, the dividend bias that you talked about, I think I'm going to hit on real quick and just kind of throw out yeah. some facts, which if you're looking at how non-dividend paying companies, which would also be known as growth companies, uh, have done from 1973 to present, basically, and you look at dividend payers, not even the growers, just dividend payers, the return in dividend paying companies from the early 70s to present, so we're talking about almost a 50-year time period, is eight times higher return for all dividend paying companies versus non-dividend paying companies. And if you throw in wow. the growers and initiators, uh, the numbers even get more impressive. It's more like 13, 14 times. And really, I think the thing that to kind of concentrate there is that if you are buying a company based upon its future earnings, which is what you're doing with a growth company, and it doesn't meet that expectation, for example, oftentimes in a rising and straight environment, which is what we're in right now, growth companies will not do as, as good as value because the inflation that you're dealing with oftentimes will eat at their margins. If you're buying a company based upon uh, what they're going to be doing two, three, five years out, you're going to be disappointed. And when you're disappointed with that margin and when you're, when you're uh, disappointed with the growth pattern, uh, even though it might be faster than this, they tend to trade at higher multiples. And as a result of that, they will get chopped at the knees. So again, one of the things that I think is really important to reiterate is for us, it's it's not about hitting a bunch of home runs. It's about hitting for consistency. It's hitting for average and scoring just as many runs, if not more, uh, but doing it in a way that protects people to the downside. Because if we don't lose your money, we don't need to make it back. So you hit on something also on this that I think a lot of people um, perhaps don't understand, which is um, some of the driving factors of um, what does make us make some of these decisions. And the other thing I mm -hmm. think that would be really important to kind of hit on in, in, in just a moment, I'll bring a, a question back to you here, but just the things that we're looking at, the fundamentals, the technicals, the macroeconomics, mm -hmm. and more importantly of recent has been the sentiment of the market that really are uh, part of what's the driving factors of, of what we're looking yeah. at. But, but you brought up um, being sector agnostic. So in that kind of situation, what do we do? I mean, kind of describe that because I mean, you kind of hit on um, there are different weightings and different indexes and everything else. So 
kind of take people through the steps that we're looking at for uh, how we manage money with regard to being sector agnostic, if you wouldn't mind. Yep. So there's, I mean, there's a, quite a few things you can touch on there. Um, so with respect to being sector agnostic, you know, again, not trying to make that uh, fancy statement there. It's really just saying if you're going to be an active manager and add value, you shouldn't be trying to look like your benchmark. The more you look like your benchmark, the less chance you're going to outperform it, right? So when we're sector agnostic, what we're talking about, again, is maybe a benchmark is, and, and maybe not everyone on the, on the podcast here is familiar with the different sectors, but I mean, there's essentially 11 sectors of the market, and I'm not going to sit here and name them all, but you've got technology, healthcare, energy, you know, some of the, some of the uh, other ones out there, of course, financials, industrials, and whatnot. But the point is, at various points in the economic cycle, you know, certain sectors are not going to do as well, and others are going to do better. So why not, during those periods of time, as an active and tactical manager, look to take advantage of, of where the backdrop is favorable, and why have exposure in places where it's not? I mean, one area specifically that we've played pretty successfully the past year is, is energy. But for much of the past few years, we haven't owned energy, you know, really in, in, in any of the strategies, and certainly have, have not gone overweight. And yet energy is the best performing sector year to date, and we played it well. You know, so it's, it's just a matter of knowing kind of when it's the time to play something and when it's not. And that's where you have to have a, a discipline, and I would, I would contend a rigid discipline that you follow that kind of guides that decision-making process and reduces any emotional impact even we have as, as portfolio managers. So one thing we start literally every day with is we have this proprietary report that we have put together that we refer to as our market barometer. And we look at that as a roadmap. And we've got a number of different uh, asset classes and sectors of the market on there. We've got the 11 sectors of the market, but we've also got you know growth companies, value companies, um, large cap, small cap, so big and small companies, you know, and, and even so much as having factors in the market like high beta, meaning higher risk companies or companies with a more quality balance sheet. And the bottom line is what we're looking at in that market barometer is over various time periods, and we're looking at a number of them on that, on that report, we're looking to see what trends are cons consistently contracting or expanding. And probably common sense would tell you, well, the trends are expanding. I want to have a greater weighting in those areas of the market, whether we're talking from a sector, a factor, perspective, geographic, capitalization, however you want to look at it. Um, and I probably don't want to have as, as much exposure to those areas of the market where those underlying trends and prices we see are contracting. So really that's kind of that guidepost that we start with. And that's something we've put together over time and collectively with our experience. And I don't know of any other firm that, that really tracks that. And, and again, when you see those, again, this is a discipline. When you see those trends, maybe where you were overweight, start to contract, we take a little bit off and we do so incrementally, you know? So I, I think that's where you can just add tremendous value for clients. Well, I think the other thing that kind of keep in mind with all this is that, um, you know, bottom line behind it is, you know, this is not a uh, 9% per sector weighting, uh, as you kind of hit on. I mean, energy uh, is not a huge percentage of, of the market. I mean, for the S&P, it's 2.3%. Uh, 
as of the end of last year and uh, for large cap value, which is more where we play in our space, it's 4.4%. Now that obviously has evolved over time. If you go back and look yeah, at where it was back in 1940s, I mean, it's it's definitely something that we need to be looking at. So, I mean, like if you go back to 19 or 19, 2014, I should say, uh, energy was over 10% of the market. And so uh, it's deteriorated over time and we've not been in that space very much at all until this year. And which we actually, again, either you have high conviction and you overweight an area, you have low conviction where you underweight or no conviction and you actually remove uh, you know, your entire exposure to a particular area of the market. Uh, like we have with Telco, for example, uh, which is a subsection hmm. of uh, the consumer services area where you know, we've, we've uh, seen that get that area get really beaten up uh, as a result of some of the inflationary pressures that have impacts on high debt companies. I think the thing that yeah. I'd like to kind of hit on uh, and maybe not go through the mathematics of it, Matt, but maybe we can kind of talk a little bit more about the conviction part. Um, so having mm -hmm. a concentrated uh, portfolio of investments um, where we aren't buying a couple hundred stocks uh, and we aren't trying to sit there and basically be a closet indexer, um, kind of take us through a little bit of what we mean there with regard to uh, this concentration and how um, this adds value. Yep, absolutely. So one, I think you got to start with, you know, when you hear the word concentration, sometimes that sounds scary. So I would put the word relative concentration in front of it, meaning relative to the vast majority of active managers, we're concentrated. As far as the actual word concentrated, we're not taking undue risk. So when we talk about relative concentration, as I mentioned before, I mean, our typical strategy holds 20 to 30 positions, right? The index, for example, Jeff mentioned that we you know, run a number of value strategies. The Russell 1000 value is our benchmark for those strategies. It's an institutional benchmark for that uh, segment of the market, okay? There's 750 plus stocks in that benchmark, and yet we're holding you know, 20 to 30, right? So that's where we talk about having that relative concentration. But again, statistically, and you know, I, I think I first came across this in, in that book, A Random Walk Down Wall Street uh, by Burton Malkiel. And, and he made reference to it in there. And there's a good illustration from it too, where it shows, you know, just kind of graphically that when you're taking on more than 30 positions, that line gets flat. You're not... You're, there's no more benefit to diversification and you're no longer reducing risk by adding more stocks. But yes, statistically, and you can look this up in some other areas too, once you start getting above say 20 to 30 stocks, your chance of adding value with any one stock, you could have a great pick and maybe it goes up 20% on earnings. Uh, if it's you know 1% weighting in your portfolio, you're not really going to see it. So, we try and have that relative degree of concentration up to the line where we can mitigate risk as much as we can, but also still have the opportunity uh, to outperform. And, and that also allows us to play things a little bit thematically. Like one area of the market where we've done really well is in the auto stock uh, this year, right? But we didn't just own 
you know, a Ford or a GM or a Tesla. I mean, we bought Ally, which, you know, is a, is a financial firm that 72% of the revenue comes from auto loans, right? We bought Board Warner and Lear, which are auto parts suppliers. You know, so in a relative uh, concentrated way, we're, we're owning a theme, and that doesn't take up more than you know, maybe 15% of any portfolio. But when we're right on those, it can add significant value, and we've really seen that here this year. Yeah, really over the past several years, I would argue. Uh, absolutely. I mean, I, I think that what, we're, what you're really talking about is there's a decay of, of risk mitigation uh, as you add more yeah. and more stocks. So if you go from one to two, obviously you're lessening the corporate risk uh, of your ownership of one of one company. But after you get to adding too many, uh, then really what you've done is removed all of that risk and reward. And really all you're doing is as an index taking on market risk. So there's corporate risk and market risk in a portfolio. And by having too many stocks, you remove the upside and the downside uh, risk of this, but if you actually have uh, good capabilities of investing good companies that will do well uh, under the current economic environment that we're in, then you remove the, the potential upside as well. Matt, I think we've got to unfortunately yeah, we, wrap we, this we up. We call those closet indexers, Jeff. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Right, the guys that just keep owning more and more stocks. Yeah. Yeah. Now, unfortunately, we've run out of time, though, Matt. So I, I apologize. Yep. Uh, you and I could go back and forth with this stuff for a long time. So um, I just want to thank our audience. Uh, and, uh, you know, basically, we'll be back on a week from now. Thank you for showing up. And, Matt, thank you again for coming on to the show. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Thanks, everybody. Polaris Wealth Advisory Group, LLC, is a federally registered investment advisor. The information, statements, and opinions expressed in this material are provided for general information only and are subject to change without notice. This material does not take into account your particular investment objectives, financial situation, or needs, is not intended as a recommendation to purchase or sell any security, and is not intended as individual or specific advice. It should not be construed as investment, legal, or tax advice. Before acting on this material, you should consider whether it is suitable for your particular circumstances and, if necessary, seek professional advice. Polaris Wealth does not offer professional, legal, or tax advice. All information contained herein is believed to be accurate, but accuracy cannot be guaranteed. Advisory services are only offered to clients or prospective clients where Polaris Wealth Advisory Group, LLC, and its representatives are properly licensed or exempt from licensure. Past performance is no guarantee of future returns. Diversification does not assure a profit or protect against loss. Investing involves risk and possible loss of principal capital. No advice may be rendered by Polaris Wealth Advisory Group, LLC, unless a client service agreement is in place.